You're fine. Thank you very much. Back from the brink. Um, having had three COVID shots and now COVID, um, I should be bulletproof. Almost back. I'm finding that afternoons and evenings I'm, uh, I'm crashing. But uh, energy is coming back slowly. My mother is doing well. That's the good news I want to report. And also others back in North Carolina. And uh, Kathy is coming home tomorrow. Our dog Ginger and I are trying to plan a ticker tape parade for her. So we'll figure out how that works. And then I came out here this morning and uh, how wonderful it was to see uh, Susan Morrow and Anna Sterner here. Mother and daughter from Locust, North Carolina. And if anybody wonders where that is, Charlotte, North Carolina is the gateway to Locust. Um, and there are other wonderful places there like Finger and Frog Pond and things like that. But it's so great to see y'all. It was Wonderful to see you from back long ago. Susan's uh, sister-in-law gave us a wonderful welcome to Locust. I will never forget that she and Shirley Klutz, when they moved us in on a Wednesday evening there, took all of our stuff from storage, put it on moving trucks, moved it all into the manse. We were practically moved in by the time that we arrived on the scene. And then when I was getting in bed that night, I will never forget, they had short-sheeted us. <laughs> Linda and Shirley. I've forgiven them, but I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> Such wonderful people and wonderful memories. And if you ask my kids to this day where they're from, they will tell you Locust, North Carolina. Grateful for those nearly 14 years of ministry there. But in the meantime, today we come to Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7. In this wonderful season of the year, as we consider that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given in the Government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's good news. It is astounding news. And as we see the events unfold, which are the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God himself, God becoming flesh in order to become one of us, in order to secure our rescue Let's read Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. My message today is, what a child this is. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. We reminded that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. So in a tractor shed at my mother and father's house is a 1946 Willis Jeep, CJ2A, but constructed from military Jeep parts from World War II. I know that because I own it. 
I bought it years ago while still living in Locust. And it's uh, painted up to look like a military Jeep from World War II. And I've had some wonderful experiences driving around in that. It was kind of my my version of a midlife crisis. It's not exactly a red convertible, but, uh, you know, it is a convertible. It has no top, and it's never had a top on it. But driving around, it's it's been wonderful experiences that I've had. I, I never will forget J.C. Tucker, for example, talking about how he drove one of those Jeeps in the Korean conflict, and he got to carry around people like Bob Hope and Danny Kay and Monica Lewis. And he really liked Danny Kay and Monica Lewis. In fact, he named his oldest daughter Monica Kay after those two Hollywood notables. One man outside of a Burger King was standing there smoking a cigarette when I walked out beside my Jeep. And I walked out and I said, hello, sir, how are you? And he said, fine, just wanted to see who owned this vehicle. And I said, well, I'm, I'm the owner. And then he told me about how he had come ashore at Normandy several days after the D-Day invasion. And he said, I was standing there on the beach when I realized that a soldier was standing next to me. And I turned around and started to speak to him. And I saw four stars on his epaulet and realized it was Dwight D. Eisenhower. He said, you know, you act a whole lot different when you think it's a private and realize it's a four-star general. But he said, had it not been for the insignia, he would have never known that that was General Eisenhower. He said he talked to him just like he was his neighbor from next door. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ is born into profoundly plain circumstances. Here, after all, is the Lord God Almighty who has set aside all indications of rank. He has given up his insignia, if you will, to come and be one of us. And so when we read these words in Luke, we are faced with this astounding declaration of Jesus becoming one of us in a most unprofound way. Now, it's couched in a historical narrative. And let us understand that while Luke was a physician, he was also a very astute historian. You may have heard how that back in the late 1800s, a man by the name of William Ramsey, Sir William Ramsey, determined to go to the Near East and to disprove the Bible. And what he decided to do was to focus on Luke's narrative in the book of Acts. Because there are so many historical and um, geographical locations mentioned there, he, he decided that that would be an easy one. That was low fruit for the picking. And so being a skeptic, he went to that region of the world, determined to disprove Luke's narrative, and after 20 years of arduous research and study and travel, William Ramsey became a Christian because he found Luke to be absolutely accurate in every detail. So when we read this gospel narrative, we realize that we're dealing with an individual who is very concerned about being accurate with historical information. Now, skeptics have tried to pick this apart. They've tried to say things like, well... <clears throat> Quirinius wasn't governor until 10 years after Jesus was born. And that's when the census was taken in 6 A.D. They're able to nail it down. However, if we'll look carefully, we realize that there are clear historical truths here. Caesar Augustus was, in fact, ruler of the Roman Empire. 
He was very concerned with registering his people. He was all about taking censuses. Census I, censuses. Kind of like aluminum. He was very concerned with that. We, we know that's true. We know that Herod, who ruled under him, was also concerned about making sure people were registered. And we know that when Quirinius was governor in that region, that there was a very famous census taken in 6 AD. So did Luke get this wrong? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that Quirinius may well have been governor twice. But more to the point, when we read in verse 2 where it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, because of the word proto there, it may very well mean that uh, Luke is saying that this was before the first census or registration that happened under Quirinius. In any case, it is an historical narrative. So be confident on this day. That your faith is based on an actual historical event. After all, if it were based on a mythological event, we would have no more than a mythological faith. If it were a fictional event, we would have a fictional faith. Remember, your faith is only as valuable as the object in which it rests. And so as we affirm together that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to affirm this truth. Jesus was actually born at an actual time and in the most extraordinarily plain circumstances. But, oh, what a child he is. We see not only that uh, he comes about at an actual time, but what's also worth noting is that anyone who would have read this narrative or who would have heard about it at the time, would have assumed that the major characters in this unfolding story are people like Augustus and Quirinius, or even Herod. And yet, these are just secondary players on the scene. Jesus is the primary character. And that remains true in our day. We may think that the most important people of our generation are the ones who parade before us on television, social media, or on the Internet, people who are talked about, written about, spoken about on a daily basis, those who are the subject of Gallup polls and various and sundries. But it remains the case that all of these individuals, 10,000 years from now, will not be the subject of our conversations. That may be hard for you to believe, that we won't be talking about who was president in 2021, or who won the Super Bowl in 2001. The subject of our conversation, the object of our attention, will be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is preeminent in all things. And so, we discern from this passage, among other things, that God's kingdom and decrees supersede all others at all times and in all places. Remember, The profound event that is happening right now in the world is that the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is being preached in all the world. That is what must happen before the end will come. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and famines. There will be pestilences, COVID pandemic, etc. 
But the seminal event is the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in all the world. That is what matters most. Don't let the news persuade you otherwise. We get a sense of that when we read in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And it's helpful to see the context of this back in Psalm chapter 2. Because after all, then as well as now, people were living in light of current events. There were nations that were powerfully exercising dominion over other nations. Kingdoms rising and falling. And the psalmist begins by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we see this playing out in our present day. Disregard of the Lord, denial of the Lord, war against God. Listen, we're in this season of Christmas and people Sometimes speak of the the war against Christmas. It's really not that. It's a war against God. There is enmity between a fallen humanity and the creator. And it continues to unfold. And so the psalmist, writing centuries before the Lord Jesus came, is giving commentary to all of this. How does God respond? Verse 4 of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll give you a paraphrase here. You think you're in charge? Let me tell you who's in charge. I have my king who's established on my holy hill. And he came into the world in the plainest of circumstances, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and was laid in a feeding trough. God has the final word. And so it is in that context that we read verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So governments can pass bills and legislate. Dictators can issue their dictates. But God's decrees are always primary. And his word is what matters. So... Caesar Augustus may have issued the order for everyone to be registered. Quirinius may have carried out orders as a subordinate of the emperor or whomever may have been in charge. But let's understand this. God was orchestrating events so that everything would unfold at just the right time and in the right way and in the right place to achieve and accomplish an act so glorious that it will boggle our minds 10,000 years from now. As we will gather there in the presence of our Lord Jesus, amazed that by his wounds we have been healed and that our sins are forgiven. God's word matters. His decrees supersede all others. Another thing to work to note here is that, as I've already belabored, Jesus' birth is an actual historical event, but with an ongoing immeasurable effect. All of us have been born. That's not anything extraordinary. Presumably you were. If you got here by some other means, I'd love to hear it. We've all come into the world. You know that we had our grandson born. He, by the way, will be a month old tomorrow. Boy, what a month this has been. Highs and lows and everything in between. Little Ethan Patrick, born on the 20th of November. 
came into the world. I get videos and pictures of him. What a wonderful experience that is. Births are historical occasions. But Jesus' birth continues to have astounding effects. I mean, think about it. The gospel is being preached today not only in English, but in every language imaginable on the face of the earth. People in all kinds of places are hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're yielding their lives to him. They're repenting of sins and trusting in him. We're in a family together. That birth having a sounding ongoing effect. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's no one like Jesus. We celebrate his incarnation because it is that wondrous, miraculous event that is beyond our ability to comprehend. God so loved us that he came himself to effect the rescue operation. He didn't dispatch angels. He came himself. Angels couldn't have done it. And only by becoming one of us was he able to achieve it. For he, being God, is infinite and eternal, able to pay a penalty that would require an infinite, eternal penalty. And yet, as one of us, he represents us. He is a human being. No one else fills those qualifications. What we also know is that this extraordinary birth is an extraordinary fulfillment of prophecy written centuries before. As we see that it was in those days, in this particular time, and on this occasion, that Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, just exactly as the prophets had proclaimed. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And as Jesus said later in his ministry, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And elsewhere, as he said to them, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's absolutely unprecedented. Hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, specific Declarations concerning the Lord Jesus written centuries before he came, describing his incarnation, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it foretold. It's unparalleled. As scholars have undertaken the study, for example, if you look in the Quran, the scriptures of Muslims, you will find They say one prophecy there. Mohammed said, I will go to Mecca. And he got on his donkey and he rode to Mecca. That's it. But in the scriptures that God has inspired, we read of the Lord Jesus throughout them, from the beginning to the last. And prophecies are one of the evidences of the identity of Jesus. You see, it really does matter. And it can be so easily missed. 
I think it was, uh, let me look, the 6th of September, 1901. Anybody remember that day? The President of the United States, William McKinley, was shot in Buffalo, New York on that day at the Pan American Exposition. He had delivered a speech. An anarchist came up with a 32 caliber revolver and fired point-blank range. One bullet ricocheted probably off of a button and then his sternum and did very little damage, but the other one penetrated and went through his abdomen. McKinley was taken to a small hospital facility and was operated on by a gynecological surgeon, interestingly enough. Now, there are a couple of things fascinating about that assassination. One is that at the Pan American Exposition, there were literally thousands of light bulbs on display throughout. There were signs lit up. One that had to do with President McKinley's arrival there. These light bulbs were everywhere. People were astounded and amazed that these electric lights were there. They had heard about them, but many people saw them for the first time. In the operating facility, there was not even a single light bulb. Someone found a shiny pan and used it to reflect sunlight from outside into the operating room so that the surgeon could see what he was doing. Another astounding thing is that the surgeon was unable to find that one bullet that penetrated into the president's abdomen. They did not find it until they performed the autopsy later. Within walking distance, there was a fully functioning x-ray machine. But they were afraid to use it. Now, in the end, we know that it wasn't the bullet that killed McKinley so much as it was the track that it followed through his abdomen, which caused infection and caused septic shock to set in. But isn't it amazing how through history and even through our own lives, we miss amazing things because we overlook them. We're looking for something else. And we could easily overlook the Lord Jesus because... Having been born into such plain circumstances, we may think it should have happened some other way. And so the shocking circumstances of Jesus' birth, rather than deter us, should compel us to make room for him. Now, here's one of those asides. In all the Christmas plays that I was in growing up in church, I think every single one of them had an innkeeper. Did anybody ever play the innkeeper in your church play? They never could trust me with an important part like that. I was usually a sheep or a cow or something. Moo. What we know is that Bethlehem was an extremely small town and that there wasn't a best western there. Probably somebody's house that had a guest room in it. The word in the original for inn can easily refer to a simple guest room in a house. And so it may simply be that that guest room was full and Joseph and Mary had to go to another room. Probably one downstairs where they kept the animals. No mention of an innkeeper. Might have been one, but not mentioned here. The point, though, is that there was no room. The King of kings and Lord of lords, whose birth had been announced by angels who had been proclaimed by prophets, when the time actually comes, there's not even a place for him to be born. 
He has to be laid in a, in a feeding trough, in a manger. But don't you see? That should compel us as we realize our standing before God, like the psalmist who said, when I consider the heavens, the stars, who am I? Who are any of us? And yet, if the Savior were born into such extraordinarily humble surroundings, then surely he could dwell in a heart like mine. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, the Christmas story is astounding, not in its pageantry or in its glorious outward manifestations. It's Extraordinary in that it's extremely plain and simple and humble. A babe in a manger. And so Jesus comes to reside within the heart of any who will receive him. You say, I don't have the pedigree. Preacher, you don't know what I've done in my life. I don't need to know. God knows you better than you know yourself. And the child in a manger, who is now the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, as he was then, but now gloriously manifested in heaven, will come to reside within any who will repent of sins and trust in him. So the question is not, why was there no room then? The question is, have you made room for him now? You see, it wasn't by accident. It's not like the Lord had all this set up, you know. Had the prophets proclaim it, had the angels visit Mary and Joseph, and the whole thing unfolded, but oh, <laughs> forgot to make reservations at the end. That's what would have happened had I been in charge. There would have been things that got forgotten. But you see, all of this happens just exactly the way God intended for it to, so that we might have every assurance. That the Lord Jesus will in fact dwell with any who will receive him. This morning on my Facebook video, I recounted a story that Joe Summerow from my church growing up told. Her father, John Cave, had been the sheriff in Haywood County, the high sheriff of Haywood County, back in the late 1920s. And back in those days, the sheriff and his family lived in the courthouse. They had to look after the prisoners, and the wife typically cooked for the inmates. So Mrs. Cade, the sheriff's wife, Joe's mother, had gotten on the train at the Waynesville Depot one morning. And it wasn't long after they pulled out of the station that she realized in the passenger car with her were two gentlemen that she had served breakfast to that morning. They had escaped from the Haywood County Courthouse. She got up out of her seat and she went back there and wagged her finger in their faces and said, I tell you right now, when I get back home this evening, you better be in jail. They were more frightened of her than they were of the sheriff. <laughs> Nobody knows what those men did in Asheville, North Carolina on that day. But what did happen was that when Mrs. Cade got back home that evening, they were in their jail cell. 
You know, in a very real sense, we're all convicts on the run. But you can only run so far. You may outrun the immediate consequences of your transgressions. But in reality, your conscience is telling you that judgment day is coming. You don't need to run from God. You can run to him. And through Jesus Christ, our Savior, through repenting and believing in him, you will be called his child. And you are free and clear forever. Heavenly Father, grant to us, O Lord, we pray, that we may grasp and believe and trust in this beloved Son of yours, who came in such lowly estate, and who even now dwells in lowly hearts. O Father, grant us grace to receive him, or otherwise to rejoice in knowing that he is ours and we are his and he will never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What child is this? I hope you know. Let's stand together and sing it.
So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Thank you.